thanks again for being here at Grace. We're, we're glad you're with us. Uh, it's, it's a great day for us. We're starting a new series, Why Believe? And we, are, we exist as a church basically to, to help people discover truth and decide on Jesus. And, and we understand that a lot of people have questions about God. And some of those questions are more emotional and some of those questions are more intellectual, intellectual but whatever the questions are, whatever form they take, they all deserve an answer. And that's what this series, Why Believe, is all about. And that's what we're going to get to. But before we get there, I, I wish you knew uh, Bill Jones. Bill Jones lives in Chico, California. He's a great guy, married to Carol. Uh, they've been married 38 years, even four years longer than Pam and I have been married. And, of course, Bill looked way different back then. He, his hair was longer than Carol's back then. You, know, you could never tell that by, by looking at him now. But uh, Bill and Carol, they both graduated from California State University in, in the Chico location, although Bill always calls it Chico State. But they graduated from there. Bill works uh, for Enloe Medical, which is a hospital. And uh, they, they have three kids, Andrew, Brent and Tim. Uh, Brent has gotten married. They're, they're all grown. Brent's gotten married. Brent's a little more serious about his faith, which I appreciate. Um, he, Bill works as a nurse. And nursing's tougher than you think. He was actually on physical disability for almost two months uh, a few years ago because of his job. And, and now I know he's grateful to be back at it. He's just one of these great guys that, that you'd love to know. Um, he's, he's involved in his community. Uh, he and Carol are, are, are great family people, has a cool family. He supports things, like, things that are dear to my heart, like uh, Chico Rescue Mission, which is a, 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 a program for men who need change through Jesus. And he's passionate about that. He uh, supports them, promotes them. And he's just, a, he's got a great sense of humor. And here's the thing about Bill. You would never know it by looking at him. He's kind of a big guy. But he's actually really passionate about vintage gaming. Like video games. You'd never guess it. I'm talking about the old stuff. Donkey Kong, Pac-Man. Anybody remember that stuff? He, he's like one of those guys. And I've never really asked him how all that got started. As a matter of fact, I've never asked him anything. Confession. I don't really know Bill Jones. I asked my wife yesterday, I said, what's a common last name? She said, Jones. I said, what's a common first name? She said, Bill. So I went on the computer and I just started Facebooking Bill Jones. But then every Bill Jones I came to had like a friend of a friend, you know, a mutual friend. So then I put in California to kind of help ease that. And then I found Bill Jones of Chico, California. And now I know a whole bunch of stuff about him in like 10 minutes on his Facebook page. You see, I know about Bill Jones, but I really don't know Bill Jones. Social psychologists would tell us today that to know somebody, there's, there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Knowing about someone just involves accumulating some information 
about their life. But if I really wanted to know him, I would need to sit down and have conversations with him and find out what his hopes, dreams, plans are in life. What he was really passionate about besides the peripheral, things that the general population would not know. That's what I'd have to do to really know Bill. Although, I could go up to Bill, I would recognize him, I'd recognize his wife Carol, and I could start a conversation. Hey, they both graduated from California State University, you know, how's that going? Hey, how are the boys doing? How's Zinlo treating you? I mean, I could have a whole conversation. He might be a little confused because he wouldn't have any idea who I was. But I'd have a smooth conversation with him. It'd be easy. But that's still not really knowing somebody. And, and here's the weird thing. You know, I may have just described the bulk of our relationships today right there. Who knows? To really know somebody, you have to know more than that. If I really know, knew him, I'd, I'd know insights that other people would know. I think one of our greatest desires, and a lot of social psychologists would say the same thing, one of our greatest and deepest desires is to be fully known and completely loved. You see, to be, to be loved but not completely known, that's... That just doesn't get it for us. If we're loved, but people don't really know who we are, it's superficial. It's unsatisfying. And to be really known and then not loved, that's distressing because it's deep rejection. I mean, they really know us and do not love us. That's no fun. Distressing, it's rejection. But I'm here to tell you that God knows you fully, and he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And where do we see that? Well, ultimately, we see that in the cross. That's how that's possible. And I know a lot of people think, well, I'm too insignificant you know, for a God to love me when there's billions of people on the earth. Or some people would say, well, if you knew all the stuff I've done, you know, I'm damaged goods. If God was ever interested in me, that's, that's long gone. But God knows you intimately, and he loves you self-sacrificially, and we actually see that kind of love playing out in the pages of Scripture in John chapter 4. And I'd like you to turn there. John 4, it's kind of a famous uh, interaction between Jesus John documents it for us. If you have a Bible, turn to John 4. If you have a device, turn it on. If you don't have a Bible, after the service, you can go back to the information table and ask them for a Bible, and we will give you a Bible as a gift from us to you. And here's how, here's how it starts, starting in verse 3. Talking about Jesus. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And so just to fill in a little context for you, 
Judea is sort of the southern part of Israel, and Galilee is the northern part of Israel to the west of the Sea of Galilee. But in between those two places is a place called Samaria. And most Jewish people avoided Samaria. Samaria, the the history kind of went back 900 years before Christ when the kingdom of Israel was divided into the southern and the northern kingdom. It's kind of a long story, but basically the northern kingdom drifted from God even further than the southern kingdom, and that was in 900 B.C. Well, in 722, almost a couple hundred years later, the Assyrians came in and sort of wiped them out. They conquered them. And then anytime the Assyrians came in to conquer an area, they didn't want any revolts or any upheavals, so they assimilated the people. And the way they did that is they took a bunch of the people who weren't killed back to Assyria, and then when the the general population that was depressed was left there, then they would import Assyrians to live there. And so through intermarriage, their nationalism was sort of fade away, And also what would happen is their religion would become corrupted through intermarriage and sort of the mix. Well, Jewish people knew all this history of Samaria, so they considered them half-breeds, if you will. That they were, you know, half-breeds, they were conquered and intermingled with the enemy, which God told them not to do. And not only that, that they had a corrupted religion. As a matter of fact, Samaritans... They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament, too Jewish for them. And so it's just the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses, and that is all they went by. But because of that, Jewish saw them as unclean. And so often, when traveling from Judea to Galilee, or vice versa, they would go six days out of their way to go way over to the east and around Samaria and then up to Galilee. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. And, um, and notice something. Jesus is tired. It's the middle of the day. He's hot. He's sweaty. You know, we don't always think of Jesus that way. And there he's sitting at a well. He didn't come as, as Superman. He was fully human. He suffered pain and thirst just like us. And so far, the story's pretty normal. But then it takes a turn. In the next verse, verse 7. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is not controlled by these social norms. It's the sixth hour. He's hot. And here's here's what's strange about that. Not only is Jesus talking to her and she sees that as strange, but also what's strange is it's noon and this woman is coming to get water at noon, which is very unusual. You know, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying something like this, but you know how ladies do things in groups more than men do? Have you ever noticed that? Like, never are you at a restaurant and a guy gets up and says, I'm going to the restroom. Hey, bud, you want to come with me? That does not happen, right? Has that ever happened? No, but ladies do that. Well, it was still that way in the first century. In the first century, all the ladies went out to get to the well, and and they did that together. It was sort of a communal thing, and that's when they talked and, and interacted and had their relationships, and they got water first thing in the morning in the cool of the day, and then that would 
take care of that they would have water for all their chores for the day. But this lady is coming to the well at noon, and we realize that she's trying to avoid her own townspeople. Now, travelers might be there, as, as the case with Jesus, but her own townspeople, they would be long gone from the well. And so we see that she's not only a Samaritan, and Samaritans are considered outcasts, she's an outcast of the outcasts. She's been kind of outcast from her society, and we see why a little later. And, uh, and again, it's unusual. In, in that culture, it was inappropriate for men to even talk to women that they didn't know. That was considered inappropriate. And then it would be very inappropriate because the Jewish people considered Samaritans unclean. So most Jewish people would not drink water from a vessel that had been handled by a Samaritan, whether it was a male or female. And so very unusual request, and the woman catches that. And so she, that's why she responded back the way she did. But Jesus breaks through all these barriers. And there are a bunch of barriers. The religious barrier, Samaritans or Jewish people. The racial barrier. The social barrier. The gender barrier. Jesus just slams through all those and interacts with a nor- in a normal conversation with this woman. Verse 10 continues. Jesus answered... And said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Do you catch what's going on? She's like, why are you talking to me? How is it that you're talking to me? And Jesus says, hey, if you knew who I was. You would be asking me for living water. And she says, water? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water? The well's deep here. And Jesus says, I have something that I can offer you that's way better than water. I can give you eternal life that gives and gives and gives. And then she's like, okay, I'll take it. Maybe it'll help me or keep me from lugging water to the well, you know, from the well every day. Sign me up. I'll take it. I'll add it to my life. That's fine. But we understand that Jesus, right, he's talking about another kind of water and another kind of thirst. That's how he's interacting with her. But, and, and basically what we're going to find out as Jesus continues here is she just can't add Jesus to her life with a surface level kind of a yes. It doesn't work that way. But right here is where many Christians stop. They're like, okay, well, you're in? Yes? Woo, great, welcome to the family. Good job, all right, let's rejoice, and everything's good. But Jesus does not settle for a surface-level yes. And we see that happening today all the time. You know, many hey, are okay with the idea of God. Yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe? Yeah, I believe in God. 
Where are you at on Jesus? I'm even good with Jesus. I think he's the son of God. Yeah, I'm in. I'll take it. I'm good with God. But that's not where Jesus stops. He wants far more than a surface level yes. And then, have you ever been in a situation where somebody said something, like in a group of people, and it got really awkward? That ever happened to you? That's exactly what happens here. Jesus says something that makes things really, really awkward. It's just that it's the two of them, but it gets really awkward right here. Verse verse 16. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. He's saying, okay, go get your husband. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And this had to stun her, right? Things got really, I bet it was crickets there for a minute. And, And Jesus, and here Jesus, he's trying to break through to her heart and get to the deepest level of her heart. And in order to do that, he brings up and identifies a personal issue in her life. And he's helping, trying to help her to see that she's trying to quench this thirst to be known and loved. This soul thirst that we all have, she's trying to quench that in the wrong way. She's trying to do it through, through men, through relationships. And, of course, we don't know what her circumstances were or how many of her husbands may have died or, or whatever. May, if, if they did die, which is kind of the best case morally situation, you know, maybe the, maybe the, the six guys like, yeah, let's not get married. You know, we know what happened to the rest of these guys. You know, who knows? Or maybe she was just seriously promiscuous. We don't know her situation. But Jesus identifies this as an issue in her life. And this is an issue that I think a lot of us have. We chase things in life that we think will bring satisfaction. We chase, we chase things, we chase, chase people, we chase relationships, we, we We chase all these things that we think will quench this thirst that we have to be known and loved. Known and loved. And it doesn't really work. And it doesn't bring satisfaction like only God can. And we use things to try to quench our thirsty soul. And and after she kind of recovers, she's stunned. You know, her, her mind's probably spinning a little bit. How did he know that? How's he reading my mail? What's this whole living water stuff? She's trying to wrap her mind about what's going on. And so she buys time. And this is the way we buy time. She changes the subject. And because she's talking to Jesus and, and, and she sees he seems to be, you know, a rabbi or, or she's perceiving that he's a prophet, that he kind of knows then, then she's like, she's changing the subject and she's going to go theology and she's going to kind of throw out a little debate that's, that she's aware of that's going on. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, talking about the Jewish people, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then he says something kind of curious, verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So she brings up a theological question. I think she's just trying to divert away from her personal life. And at the time, there was a debate going on about the temple. There's a temple in Jerusalem. We, we know where the temple was now. If you look at the Wailing Wall or all the news that's always happening in Jerusalem, that Wailing Wall is the foundation for the Temple Mount where now the Muslims have a, a mosque. And that was built in, at the, that was there at the time of Jesus, the, those retaining wall. The temple and everything's gone just like Jesus said it was going to be gone. But Samaria... A little bit before this time, about 100 years before this, Samaria had built a rival temple. They only went by the Pentateuch, so it didn't say where the temple had to be. And so on a mountain that you could see from Jacob's well, so they're talking, there was a hill nearby, a mountain, Jerizim, and that's where they had built a temple. But the Jewish people had come in and destroyed it because they said, no, there's only one temple. That's what the rest of the Old Testament says. And, and so that was kind of an argument of the day. And then Jesus comes back with this answer. He's saying, you know what? It's actually not about geography. But he's talking to this woman. What I found interesting is he doesn't pull the theological punches. I mean, he could just say, well, let's not talk about that. Let me just tell you this. There's a day coming where there is no temple. And he does that, but he inserts something at well as well. He doesn't, he, even though he's trying to engage her in conversation, wants to help her, he doesn't hold back. He just says, hey, you, you guys don't know what you're talking about regarding the temple, and we do. But you know what? It doesn't really matter. He corrects her theology, but then he goes on to teach her something deeper. And, and the whole temple is kind of interesting. I, I know, you know, if you don't know much about the temple, just quickly, I, I want you to see, if you just hang on for a second. The temple, you know, this is how this all happened in history. Why is there a temple? You know, what, what is, who cares where the temple is? Why, why do we even need a temple? Well, in the Old Testament, we know God created us. You know, God made a people. He called Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Later, Moses got the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, it was like, what that did is it saying, hey, God said, hey, I created you, and I want you to know here is right and wrong. And so we got the law, like the Ten Commandments. That's part of it. And then we start realizing nobody can keep this. Keep God first. Honor your mother, parent, 20, honor your parents 24-7. Keep a day holy. You know, all this stuff that we realize we cannot do this. Never take the Lord name in, Lord's name in vain. Always keep God number one in your life every second of every... You know, all this stuff. And, and we fail. And so God says, you know what? I, I am just. Just what we, we would hope God would be, he's just. He's just, but his justice demands that sin be punished. If wrongs are not punished, there is no justice. Now you're just winking at wrongs and nobody takes it seriously and there's no justice. Justice demands, mercy can say, yeah, let him go. But justice, true justice, demands that wrongs, all wrongs, be punished. It's just what justice is. And God is perfectly just. And so then we realize because of the law, none of us, 
None of us are doing the right thing. We've all broken the law. We've all sinned against other people, but more importantly, we've sinned against God. Well, then God makes allowance in the law for the temple. And he says, there's a temple, and here's what you do. You take once a year, and there are other sacrifices too, but you take this sweet, innocent lamb. This is really upsetting to our culture today. You take a sweet, innocent lamb, and you bring that lamb to the temple, and then it's like conferring all of the people's sins onto the lamb, and then you kill the lamb. The sweet, innocent lamb dies because of your sin, and that covers you temporarily for the next year. And it's brutal, and you watch the blood flowing out of the lamb. It's, it, and what God's trying to tell us is sin is serious, and a sacrifice, blood has to be shed for sin to be paid for. And this is just temporary. And that has to happen in the temple. And so that's the only way that their sins can be covered. So the temple's huge. But we're not talking about the temple, so let me move on, all right? So Jesus talks with the woman. He doesn't hesitate to correct her bad theology. And then in verse 23, he says this. But an hour is coming, and now is... When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he's saying not about geography, not about temples. There's coming a time, and there's coming a time where all that stuff will be obsolete because God wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. And in truth. But he, this interesting phrase, but an hour is coming. Anytime John writes that Jesus says an hour is coming, Jesus is always talking about his death every time. Every time John records that Jesus speaks these words, an hour is coming, it's always talking about the future, it hadn't happened yet, the crucifixion that Jesus. And, and the disciples didn't always understand that. And the crucifixion actually happened some months later. And he, that's the hour he's talking about. Verse 25. And the woman said to him, she, she's not really probably equipped to debate Jesus on this. So she just says, woman said to him, I, here's what I do know. I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And next verse, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Which is amazing in the pages of the New Testament because Jesus is usually very reluctant to reveal himself as the Messiah, in, especially in front of Jewish audiences because the Jewish people had all these political expectations of the Messiah and they would start trying to force him to be a king and, and he came a different way and he didn't come to be king this time. That's going to happen next. And, and all these things are going on. But to this woman, one-on-one, -on -one, this one woman, he just says it. That Messiah you're talking about, it's me. I am he. I'm the Messiah. Huge. Verse 27 continues. Now, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. 
This isn't the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and they were coming to him. So all these guys are coming to Jesus. And remember, Jesus doesn't just know about events in her life. Jesus is revealing to her that I know all about you. I know everything about you. All the things that you would rather keep hidden, I know. I know the desires of your heart. Just like he knows the desires of our heart even better than we. He knows you. He loves you. And he wants you to respond with belief. That's actually what happens here. We see it later in verse 39. It says, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've, I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's significant. Because the Samaritans are saying, We get he's the Savior, not just of the Jews, and not just of the half-Jews. He's the Savior of of the entire world, we're convinced he's Messiah and he's the Savior. They see this very, very clearly. And so what's the point? The point is simply this. Just like this woman who was an outcast of the outcasts, who theologically and as far as God's concerned, if anybody was insignificant, this would be the one. God knows you. God knows everything about you. God knows everything you've ever done. God knows everything you've ever thought about. God knows your every action. God knows your every motivation. Even your motivations that sometimes aren't that great, even when you're doing good actions. God knows everything. He knows every desire in your heart, every longing, and every need. God knows you completely. He knows all the stuff that you've tried to keep hidden that nobody else knows about you. He knows you completely. And, and here's the thing. We want to be known and loved, but when you think about it, nobody really knows us. Nobody knows everything we think about. Probably not a good idea to share with your best friend or your spouse every thought that you've ever had. Trust me, don't even think about it. Probably not good. The closest people that we have, our best friends, our spouse, the people who know us the best, they still don't know everything about us. God does. And God not only knows you, he loves you. And I'm not talking about the love like we use the term, which is a lot of kind of emotion and I can't live without you as long as you're meeting my needs. You know, and all this stuff that, that kind of goes on today. God loves you 
and he's all in. He loves you completely, and he loves you self-sacrificially. Even if you don't love him back, he loves you first. He initiates. He pursues. He woos you. He calls you. He loves you with action and emotion. He loves you so much. He made a way for you and me as sinful human beings to be reconciled with and have a relationship with a pure and holy, just God. And there's really only one way to do that. And that is, he paid for our sin. When he sent his son Jesus, who voluntarily died on the cross in payment for Kevin's sin and in payment for your sin. And I know people in our day, they hear this and they think, wow, this talk of the temple and sacrifices, wow, so primitive, so, so brutal. So, you know, it's just, that doesn't, that, that sounds so ancient, so pagan. What's going on there? You have this God that demands to be satisfied. You know, what is that? And that's the opposite of the God we're talking about. Because God is just, and sin does have to be paid for, and he does truly have wrath against sin. But what makes him completely different than every other God that any religion ever talks about is that he says, I will pay the price for you. The price has to be paid, but I will pay it for you. Jesus will pay it for you. He will suffer and die as a fully human being and fully God, but as a fully human being, feeling everything that we would feel if we were hanging on a cross, being tortured to death. And he pays that price, infinite God, hanging on a cross to pay our price for sin, my personal sins, all of them, past, present, and future, and he paid for yours too. But in order to receive it, we have to know him, not just know about him. You can't just know some facts about God, but that you looked up in the Bible. Oh, he's God, he's eternal, yeah, we got it, infinite, and I'm okay with Jesus, God's son. You can't just know about God. He's inviting us into relationship with him. He fully knows us, and he's inviting us into a relationship with him where we get to know him more and more intimately every day. Because becoming a Christian is not just knowing God, it's turning toward God. Asking for forgiveness, but with a desire to follow him and do life with him. So we experience that living water that bubbles up in eternal life. That's what God's offering. But we only get it through faith. And it's the kind of faith that not only believes, but has a desire to follow. And so just like this woman and these towns, people, these Samaritans 2,000 years ago, today Jesus is offering a relationship with you. And that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. 
well, Kevin, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with God. I think about God sometimes. Right. That's not what God's talking about. He's talking about responding to him in faith, recognizing our sin and this huge, infinite cost that was paid for us. And when we truly get that, in gratitude, we'll want to follow him. Now, because this is the most important decision, I want to pause right now before I end this sermon and just give you an opportunity to process that a little bit and maybe to step into that relationship with God. And so right now, I'd like everyone to bow your heads. And if, if you can't look back to a time where you know that you began a relationship with Jesus and that you can see sort of the fruit or the changes of that relationship since that time, which would give an indication that you're trying to follow him, that, you, that you've done things since that time just for God, not for you, If, you, if you're not sure about that, then maybe you need to make this decision now. And what I'm going to do is faith and trust is just when we believe. But we can verbalize that to God through prayer. And we don't have to say an audible word. So just in your mind, you can pray to God. And I want to just lead you in a prayer. But, but please understand, this prayer has to be your prayer in your words. You know, it, and it has to be sincere from your heart. It's not just certain words to be said. It's expressing a faith that you have found. And you can express that to God. If you're not sure you ever had, I would invite you to pray to God with our heads bowed right now, something like this. Father God, I understand that, that you know me and love me, and I also understand that I've sinned against you. I admit that. And I know that sin should be punished. It's the right thing. And I thank you that Jesus took my punishment for sin. And God, I'm asking you, Lord, to please forgive me and to come into my life and to help me follow you. Help me to know you better and better. And I thank you that you want, you desire, you reach out for me. You love me and you want relationship with me, even though I don't deserve it. God save me. And I'm putting my faith in Christ and Christ alone right now. In Christ's name. Amen. While our heads are still bowed, just for you to solidify this in your own mind and heart, what I'm going to ask you is I'd like you to just raise your hand if, as far as you know, for the first time, sincerely, when you really meant it, you prayed this prayer. That, that doesn't change anything. If you've put your faith in Christ, that's all it is. But I'd like you to tell somebody, and I'd like you to start by, by telling me. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything just right now with our heads bowed, because I don't want to embarrass you in any way. Just, and I'm looking around. Just pop your hand up and say, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer. As far as I know, the first time, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Right now, just put it up, and then you can put it right down. Just put it up and down. Thanks. Just put it up. Let, let me kind of see you, and then put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Pop it up, thanks. And then back down. Thank you for trusting me with that. 
Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for the day that we could come together and and talk about a relationship with you that brings so much joy into our lives that we're fully known and completely loved. And we live in that reality as we follow you. Thank you for that greatest gift. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.